If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to two sections of Scripture this morning. We'll be in 1 Kings 22, and we will be in Ezekiel 18. We are trying to finish up on a little series I started last night, dealing with the sins of the fathers being passed down to the, sin, to the sons, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers, it says, because of their idolatry in Exodus chapter 20, that is going to have this um, dilatory effect upon your family, that there are consequences to what you do. When you sin, your sin is never sinned in a vacuum. It always affects somebody else. Even when you think it's just affecting you, it's affecting somebody else. How, how can you say that? Because you're not the person you're supposed to be because of that sin that you're supposed to be the next day. So it has an effect upon somebody else, even if it's indirectly. It still has an effect. And we're going to see a little bit of that in 1 Kings 22 as we look into this idea. And this is where I'm going in the message today. So sometimes it's good the preacher starts out right at the very beginning and tries to tell you what he wants you to get out of the message, okay? Whether we're in 1 Kings 22, Ezekiel 18, wherever we kind of dance around and try to understand um, from examples or illustrations from Scripture or from, from life, this is what I want you to get is that you and you alone are responsible for your actions. You are going to reap what you sow. Now, what we also saw last night is that you also reap what other people sow. And there's a fairness to it. I'm not held guilty or blameworthy for their specific individual sowing or sin. But if I'm part of that house, or we say guilt by association, I call it contamination by association, that there is fallout from that. That's last night. Israel went off into the Babylonian captivity, and it's told specifically in the book of Jeremiah, because of the sin of Manasseh. Because of the abominations of what Manasseh did, that's it. It's the tipping scale. Israel's going off. You had some hope with Josiah, his father, before he got killed by Pharaoh Necho. But once he died, that was it. Manasseh took over, reigns for like 55 years, and plunged the entire nation because of his actions into the Babylonian captivity. It was because of his actions that the fifth compartment of the Titanic took on water, and after that, the architect of the Titanic said what? She's unrecoverable. She's going to start listing to one side. She can't be saved. She's going to go down. Now, our culture has hit that spot. We talked a little bit about that last night in the Romans 1. Got these signal sins. When you get into the, into the realm of the signal sins of dehumanization, men sinning against natural law, that's not a sign of judgment to come. That is judgment that has come. Here you are as a Christian, and in a, in a very indirect way, you're under the judgment of God. Because we're in a community that is experiencing the wrath of God. Because, see, the wrath of God is revealed, it says. Now, what we want to look at this morning is, as we saw last night, is that you had these passages, for example, in Scripture 
Deuteronomy 24, 16, that says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So now we're dealing with the individualization of sinning and the consequences thereof. Because I got to tell you, and you know how this works. We live in a world that, pro that plays the blame game. From Adam in the garden blaming his wife to the man who sued McDonald's because of his obesity. Everybody plays the blame game. Well, I'd be, I wouldn't be this way if my parents hadn't done this. See? Then we see that in Exodus. We'll see that in Ezekiel 18. I wouldn't be this way if we, you know, we had better politicians that did this, that, or whatever. And Democrats blame Republicans. Republicans blame Democrats. And we like it so. We're used to that. You can get addicted to the news and watch these people blame one another. And a lot of times they're correct. There's a lot of blame to go around. But what you're going to find out is that the blame game is played because it shifts this convicting spotlight off of you onto somebody else. <coughs> and that's why God hates it. And you're going to see what he says in Ezekiel 18 as we look at that passage in, in some detail. But before that, I want you to take a look in 1 Kings 22 because I want you to see in this whole idea that in, uh, when you make a decision, a decision that you make, other decisions that are made at the same time and as a consequence of it. There are eight truths of every decision you make. And in 1 Kings 22, to kind of give you a kind of little lay of the land of what's going to take place here, is that it says in verse 1, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. And so you got this king of Aram that's going to go to war with Israel. The king of Israel is, um, I think it's Ahab. And then the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat and Ahab are together. And so he says, look, you're my brother. Why don't you go into battle with me? We'll fight against the, the king of Aram. And so Jehoshaphat kind of knows a little bit of the Lord and says, look, before we go there, when we find out and inquire of the Lord if this is going to be profitable for us. And so he says, okay, well, no, that's, that's a good idea. And so he brings his entourage of prophets to the assembly there and says, prophesy. And so when they prophesy, all the prophets unanimously say the same thing in verse 6. Go up. The Lord will give it to you in battle. Well, Jehoshaphat can read through that in verse 7 and says, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? These are, these are a bunch of yes men that you have. I really want to hear from God on this thing here. And so Ahab says, Well, there is a guy, Micaiah, but he just never says anything good about me. Jehoshaphat said, That's probably the guy we need. Won't you bring him here and we'll hear what the Lord says. So they summon Micaiah to, to come, and he says, verse 13, Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophet are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, kind of mocking the prophets, and he says, Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the king 
cuts to the chase and says, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So he says, Okay, I'll tell you the truth. You want the truth? Here it is. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Micaiah said, Here's the word of the Lord. I'm going to interpret what I just said. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. What a revelation of what's taking place in heaven. First thing you need to know about every decision you will make. Now, this isn't trying to bust the, the myth of free will or whatever, but you're going to see here that this whole idea of decision making that you make, there are other people that are behind the scenes that make decisions with you. And some are more nefarious. And some aren't. But here's the, 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 here's the message. Your decision is yours. And the first thing you need to know about your decisions you make is that as a free agent, you create your own decisions. You are the decision maker in these things. You and you alone are accountable for your decisions. They're yours. You alone make them. Nobody else can make them. Eve can't make Adam's decision. When Adam ate of the fruit, he ate of the fruit and plunged the entire race. He can't blame Eve. Yeah, but she did this and she did that. She sure did. But when it came to eating that fruit, you ate that fruit. Narrow in, Adam. You ate the fruit. Leave Eve out. Leave the serpent out. Leave God out. You are responsible for what you did. You alone. That's your decision. You crafted it and you made it. Like you made that bed and now you have to lie in it. Your, your own decision maker. Not even God makes a decision for you. He's sovereign over all the decisions, but your decision is yours. That's why it says in the text, he will have to, on the day of judgment, what takes place. Men must give an account for what they have done. The decisions they have made. God makes a decision for you, and you're just there by proxy. Then there's no real judgment. And there's no real sin. And there's no real righteousness. So you own every decision you make. You're the creator of that decision. The decisions you make, you make and you make them freely. No one's sitting there forcing you to do something that you don't want to do. Because you have to own it. That's the first thing you need to understand, kids. You can't say, yeah, but my brother... 
He made me. My sister, she looked at me funny. And so it made me say this or made me do that. <clears throat> and what's the old saying that parents would always use? Don't make me get up. Right? You're making me get up. It's your fault I got to get up out of the lazy boy and do something. And once again, it's blame shifting, which we all get schooled in growing up. And then it gets culturized and everybody gets very, very good at it. What's some of the terms they use for that? Gaslighting today. Try to make somebody else feel guilty for really what your narcissistic worship of yourself wants to do. The bottom line is you're making those decisions and they're yours. Now, what we see in this passage here this morning in 1 Kings 22 is that there's not just decision, decision makers, which are us as individuals, but there's also decision influencers. Ahab, when he makes his decision later on, he's going to go out to, to battle. He even disguises himself so that he's not even to, to look like the king of, of Israel, which is who Aaron really wants to go after. He makes the decisions. But you see the people behind the scenes doing what? Making decisions. They're making decisions while Ahab makes decisions. So while you are responsible for your decisions, as we saw last night, there are things that influence your decisions. That's why there's no such thing as free will. There's no such thing as free will. There's a will, and every will is attached to a nature. And you're going to make decisions based upon your nature. We had a dog, and we used to have a rabbit. And when I'd put, I'd try to teach the kids this. Simple, simple illustration. I'd feed the dog the lettuce and the carrots, and the dog kind of sniffs at it, looks at me like, really? And I would say, well, why didn't the dog eat the lettuce and the carrots? I mean, it's food, right? Take it, give it to the rabbit. <laughs> said, what's the deal here? Try to give the rabbit dog food? Really? You know, it's like, so they began to understand. I said, why does the rabbit choose what it wants to eat? It's based on his nature. There is no such entity, God included, that doesn't have a will that's tied to a nature. God does his will based upon who God is. You do who you make your choices based upon who you are. So every decision is not only yours, is not only freely made, created by you, but it's also nature guided. Ahab wants to go to battle. So he's going to surround himself with yes men. And those yes men are going to tell him what he wants to know. And God's going to see to it that that happens. God's decision is part of this. So is those evil spirits in heaven. And so is those false prophets down here. Everybody's making a bunch of decisions here. And it's going to affect one man's decision that he's going to make. And when everything's said and done, Ahab is going to make the decision to go to battle. Imagine that. So it's a scary thought, if you think about it, that simplest decisions you might make in life, what's behind the scene making decisions to influence me to make this decision? God even comes through Micaiah and says, Micaiah, go tell Ahab what's going on with the decision influencers. 
so that he can even see there's, there's things behind him making these decisions against him. Telling that. Showing that. I mean, it's not like, you know, he's finding this out after he dies. It's not like Ahab finds this out when he's, you know, before God in heaven. He's finding this out down here. Micaiah's telling him this. Now, you would think, if you get told this kind of information, you'd say, oh, time out. We're not going to battle. I mean, God's putting out bids on his destruction. Who will make Ahab fall at Ramoth Gilead? One contractor comes in and says, I can do this. Another contractor comes in and says, I can do that. One guy comes in and says, hey, all those yes men around him, I can influence them to make a decision to lie to him so that he believes their lie and we can get your sovereign will accomplished to make him fall at Ramoth Gilead. Now you're talking about the sovereignty of God on full display in the midst of evil. Now you look at that and you say, wow, isn't that wrong for God to do that? God can't do anything wrong. Remember hearing people use this word responsible, and you can't use the word responsible and God in the same sentence. God is not, it might come as a shock to you, God is not responsible for any of your actions. Responsibility is a word that only a creature can have. And it's only a word that means something if there is a higher up authority you have to answer to. If there's nobody you have to answer to, then you're not responsible. Who you're accountable to. There's no consequences. There's no payoff. There's no higher up. And God's not only not responsible to you, he's not even responsible for his own actions. The only person God answers to is God. He don't answer to some law higher than God. And everything he does, he says, is good and righteous and holy. So if he says, I am going to make Ahab fall at Ramoth Gilead, and he goes about it this way, then this is good. And he's showing us this. So if you're a decision maker, and we all are, you have decision influencers in your life. The biggest one in your life is your nature. What you are, how you got to where you're at. You are here today as a result of, of the accumulation of every single decision you've ever made in your life. It's led you to this pew in this church at this hour to hear this message. All of those years of all the choices in the meandering like the Mississippi River has brought you here. That's a good thing. Now you're seeing, wow, all my decisions did that? Yeah, but they weren't done in a vacuum. You had other decision makers in your life, good and bad. And the biggest one is God. And he made sure you got here. He made a decision on your behalf. Well, who shall make Ahab fall at Ramoth Gilead is who shall make you appear here at Cheetah Baptist and through the Holy Spirit and through the counsel of others and things of this sort and the decisions they made here you are but you were driven here by your nature your nature wants to be here it's like breathing it becomes natural so nature is a big part of your decisions that you make 
Another aspect about every decision you make, every decision you make is socially shaped. It's shaped by the people around you. You see this here. Ahab is shaped by the prophets around him. Remember the Creator in the days of your youth, it says in Ecclesiastes 12.1. That's during the time where you have those decision influencers in your life. And you're supposed to listen to these things. Shun this, accept this, and your life will be better for you. You'll live long in the land, it says. These outside influences of parents and teachers and neighbors and friends, angels and demons, everything imaginable out there, making decisions not for you, but they're making their own decisions, which they're going to be held accountable for, but it's going to influence your decisions. So you need to know that going in so that when you go in and you make a decision, you might be able to know all these things are in your head, trying to make you go in a certain given direction. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have to give an account for the decision I made. So, buddy, I need to buckle up and make the, the wisest, choicest decision for the glory of God. Nature-guided, socially conformed your decisions will become an influence on your future and on others. The decisions you make today are going to be part and parcel of the decisions you make tomorrow. You make a good one today, you'll make a better one tomorrow. You make a bad one today, you'll make a worse one tomorrow. They don't live in a vacuum, they live in a continuum. It's like the, the little phrase that we reap what we sow. We harvest what we plant. Right? It says that in Galatians chapter 6. God's not mocked. But if you sow tomatoes, don't expect corn. You're going to reap in kind what you sow. Not only that, you're going to reap more than what you sow. Nobody plants one tomato seed and gets one tomato out of it. You get a bunch. And you reap proportionally to what you sow. If I plant 10 tomato seeds, I'm going to get more than yours when you plant one tomato seed. You might get more tomatoes on that one tomato seed, but I'm really going to get away more if I could plant 10 tomato seeds. That's just how it is. This is the net effect of the decisions you make. There are consequences. There are blessings. And you also reap in a different season than when you sow. You don't plant today and reap today. So the decisions you have made in the past, this is who you are. Welcome to you today. You're the product of all the decisions that you have made and the product of all those things around you that have made decisions that have influenced your decision-making. That's a bunch of decisions going on at one time, isn't it? And all of them are going to get judged on Judgment Day. And every single one is going to, have, is going to be, as it says in Romans 3, silent before the Lord, and nobody can open their mouth and say, hey, that's not fair. But what else? The decision <clears throat> originators, not just the decision maker, which is you, the decision influencers, which is around you, whether your nature or people or demons or whatever else, but the decision originators, every decision that you make, while it becomes an influence on your future and on others, is controlled in your decision making. 
by God. Every decision you make controlled by God to the extent that God controls and predestines all the internal and external factors of influence that come to bear on every decision you make. He doesn't make them for you. He controls everything around them so that you make them. You ever seen that, um, that game in the Olympics? What's it called? Um, curling. Where they put the puck down and they start moving it. And so they, they kind of shoves it down there. And they got these guys out there with Swiffers or something. They got some sort of <laughs> vacuum cleaner or something. And they're doing something in front of the puck. What are they doing in front of the puck? On the floor. They can't touch the puck that they would be disqualified. They're influencing the puck by influencing the floor. Making the floor warmer, whatever. It draws the puck a little further down. And boy, they're just feverishly doing this. Whether those are demons or whether those are angels, whether those are communists, whether those are Republicans, whether they're political, apolitical, they're doing that to every decision you're making. But you're the puck, and you're decision-making, and you're making it. And God is in control of all of that. Who will be a swiffer and make Ahab fall at Ramoth Gilead? Or make you prosper, or whatever else it might be. God is in control of every single influence in your decision-making. And He does that to achieve His own purposes. That's why when He says to Ahab, this is, there are deceiving spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, was to get Him to turn from these things. Now, if we turn to Ezekiel chapter 18, this is where we get our text that we've been looking at about the father's sins and the son's. And God hates this idea of the blame game in verse 2 where he says, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge? As I live, declares the Lord, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. You're not going to play the blame game. And notice he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a, if a man is righteous... And practices justice and righteousness. In other words, he starts going through case law, cases, examples of what a man does. He says he doesn't do this. He doesn't eat at the mountain of shrines and, you know, does this with a woman or oppress anyone and robbery and things of this sort. He walks in my statutes, verse 9, and my ordinance so as to deal faithfully. He is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. Here's the general equity principle here. He's doing the right thing. He's going to get a life. That's what he says if a man does these things. Now, here's verse 10. Now, see, he's going to kind of, here's the guy here with the sour grapes and the, and the kids, you know, with the cavities or whatever. He comes in with verse 10 and says, Then he, ha he may have a violent son who sheds blood and who does any of the things to a brother. In other words, all the opposite of what this righteous man does. He lends money on interest, takes an increase. He has committed all these abominations, verse 13. He will surely be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Now, here's a third case in verse 14. This son, different son. Now, behold, he has a son who has observed all of his father's sins that he's committed. And observing does not do likewise. He doesn't eat at the shrines and things of this sort. He goes to the specific litany of sins. And he says, what happens to this guy who says he's going to break off and not practice the sins of his father? You would tend to think, according to, you know, visiting the iniquity on the third and fourth generation, I guess he should die. He goes, no. Verse 17, he will live. 
Here's another one, verse 18. And as for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was not good among his people, behold, he will die for his iniquity. Now, here's where he gets into them in verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? When the son has practiced justice and righteousness and observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. He's already said that in verse 5. He's repeating it again in verse 20. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. And then he gets into verse 21, and the scenario changes and says, But if the wicked man turns from his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he will surely live. He will not die. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Here's this turning principle now coming into play. And he talks about turning in verse 24 in the reverse. Here's a righteous man turns away from his righteousness. Here's the reverse of repentance. This guy's repenting from his righteousness. Starts committing iniquity and does all the abominations that a wicked man does. Will he live? He will die, he says at the end of verse 24. Verse 25, yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is, not, is my way not right? Is it not your way that's not right? When a righteous man turns from his righteousness and goes south, he will die. Wicked man turns from his wickedness, which he's committed, he will save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions, which he has committed, he will surely live. And of course, they have their little refrain again. And, but the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. And then he says, are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Then he says in verse 30 through 32, he says, therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his own decision-making, his own conduct, declares the Lord. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. And why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. <clears throat> this is what you need to understand in this chapter. This is what he's driving home. The first principle here is quit blaming others for your situation. Here they are by the river Shebar or whatever in Babylon, pining away, crying in their beer, using the phrase, if we only had better dads who raised us better. We only had better politicians, yada, yada, yada. They were even saying that in Jerusalem, according to Jeremiah 31. Same proverb. And now the exiles over here who got carried away and survived, and yet got carried away, are working off that same premise. It's the blame game, and God's going to have none of it. Now, listen up, Christian. He's not going to have any of it from us. Quit blaming people for your situation. Quit blaming your spouse for your situation. 
Yeah, but she affects the way I think and the way I... She will. That's last night's message. That's the whole idea of 1 Kings 22. People you around are going to affect you, but you can't blame them for your, your decisions. Your decisions are yours and yours alone. You're going to have to reap what you sow. And you're, you sometimes reap what they're sowing as a contamination, but not as a guilt. And not as a blessing. It's yours and yours alone. Quit blaming others. That's what the whole, most of Ezekiel 18 is about. Quit trying to put this off on the fathers. Second thing you need to understand about this chapter, and you can see it in verse 21, <clears throat> basically through verse 29. Quit living in the past. That's interesting here. You know, Two major messages in this chapter. You are responsible and you are redeemable. You can be redeemed. That's the whole point when he talks about turning. Why does he talk about turning here? It's interesting. You know, when he says in verse 21, he says, but if the wicked man turns from all his sins. Now think about it. This man's got a past. He's called a wicked man for a reason. I mean, how many banks you got to rob to be called a bank robber? Just one. You got a past. You got a moniker. They call you by something because of your deeds in the past. And God comes in and says, If a man turns from all of his sins which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice. This is present tense. He shall not die. Verse 22. Listen to the wording. All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced. He will live. When you turn from your wickedness and you take the first step in the direction of righteousness, you know what God calls you? Righteous. That means when you take the first step and say, I want Christ, that step that you just left has got to be let go. You can't live in that past. You can learn from the past. You can't live in the past. Don't let anybody call you by the past. I always feel sorry for Rahab. She never lost that moniker first. She was always Rahab the harlot. No, she wasn't. Rahab the great-grandmother of David. There you go. There's a title. But sometimes those titles stick. You got to let them go. You can't think along those lines. You're now righteous in his sight. But see, the converse is true, too. If you take a step in the, and go in this direction here and go outside the Lord, can you call yourself Christian? Can you call yourself righteous? No. So, Lord, help me in my decision-making so that I do what? I don't blame somebody else for the decisions that I make, but I don't live with the title of what I used to do in the past. What am I doing today? You ever notice in John 3, 16, there's no past tense? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever does what? Believes. That's a present continual action. Right? Shall have eternal life. It's what are you doing today? What are you doing now? That's the focus in Ezekiel 18. Quit talking about what dad did with the sour grapes and what your teeth is and what they're not. 
rotten out of your mouth or whatever it might be. Whatever it is, I'm going to the Lord and I'm going to walk with him. Forget dad. Forget how I got here. But I'm here. And since I'm here, what am I doing while I'm here? I'm going to practice what dad did? No, I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to turn from all those things and seek him. Now we're getting somewhere. This is what he's trying to tell these people who are in exile. Quit tying your misery to Manasseh. You're here. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to think about yourself in God, in your surroundings? Well, you see the little phrase, when, you're, when life gives you a lemon, what do you do? Here's the lemonade. I can't be blaming people. You're blaming people, you're sucking on a lemon. You're not making lemonade. And you're going to have that sourpuss testimony as a result. Quit complaining and whining. You've been bought with a price. Philippians chapter 2, God's at work in you to work out His will and His purpose. The very next verse is what? Do all things without grumbling and disputing. There's a reason for that. You whine, you're blaming somebody else for your condition. Stop it. I don't care how bad it is. God can give you the grace to have that testimony that shows there's been a change. So we quit doing what? Blaming others. We quit living in the past. And then, here's the cat. And this is a hard one in verse 31 and 32. Quit waiting for change. Well, you know, I, I really could repent better and believe on Jesus. If he would just regenerate me. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. You know, I, you can't do anything unless God does something first. And you sit back on your hands waiting for God to do something so that you can do something. And that's blaming God in an indirect way. He tells you to make yourselves a new heart in a new spirit. Now, when you read that as a good Calvinist, you realize, I can't do that. In fact, you read the same passage with the same proverb in Jeremiah 31. And when the writer, when he says, he, he says it. He says in verse 30, I'll read it to you. He says in 29, he says, let's see. He talks about, he says, in those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember this in Hebrews 8? This is the same place where he gets it from. This will be a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. New heart. New spirit. I will do it. In Ezekiel, he says, you do it. Which tells me what? You're responsible for a new heart and a new spirit. And if you don't have the ability to, to make one and you don't, then I ought to tell you something. Since his new covenant is to provide that, you need to go to him for it. You've got to have it or you're going to wind up making excuses for your behavior. And if I don't have it, Lord, where can I get one? Let me see. Jeez, can't get it at Target. You've got to go to the Lord. You've got to seek his face for it. And people who are responsible, they don't blame others. They don't live in the past because they repent, right? And they know I have got to have 
a new heart. That means a whole new center of direction has to change in my inner man to make these kind of decisions. Lord, and I don't have that. I need that. And let me tell you something. That's the, the message of Ezekiel 18. That's the message when it talks about the sins of the fathers being passed down to the sins of the sons, and you can break that like Daniel would, would confess his sins and the sins of his fathers. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we're doing what God wants us to do. In the converse of that, like the faith of our fathers. And now we have these great influences around us. And now the things that I'm deciding and making decisions on, I'm doing it from a, a position of having something new in me. I'm doing it with other decision makers around me in the spiritual realm, making them for me as well. Ministering servants of angels who are on my side, ministering to me, pro me, to be more like Christ. Christ saying, you're going to be conformed to my image, making decisions in that direction. Now, we know God's sovereign and God's the initiator of all these things. That's part of the things about what it means to have to be the ultimate decision maker. It's his decisions that are sovereign. We know that. But when he makes all these sovereign decisions, he's going to make sure those influencers are there so that the decisions you make are going to be made for the glory of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that will not come out of your mouth is that blaming fathers for sour grapes, blaming others for your situation. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 10? I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Is there anything good in me? It's the Lord and the influencers and the decisions and all these things around that he has put on me to go in that direction. It's all from him. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be going in that direction. But when push comes to shove, you know something? You're going to make that decision to serve Christ. And we know all these influencers have caused us to go in that direction. And you know what's going to happen on Judgment Day? You're going to get a reward for that. You're going to get a crown for that. But it won't be done in a vacuum. And you'll recognize and say, yeah, you're right. I've made that call to go to do this for Jesus. But look at the chorus of things around me that made decisions with me to go in that direction. And no wonder we take our crowns off and say, Lord, the ultimate decision maker for me to go in this direction was you if you hadn't done that if you haven't didn't decide see decide decision to do that where would i be but don't think you are left out of the loop in making that decision you make them so there's a truth to that little song you know with what the billy graham song just as i am without one plea and you make a decision for Jesus. And they talk about making a decision for Christ. We don't believe in decisional regeneration. I get that. You're right. But your entire Christian life is made up of decisions. You make them all the time. You're making them even now. To pray, not to pray, to do this, to do that. Whatever it might be, you're making those decisions. So the purpose of this message is for you to value that to weigh that, to recognize, Lord, help me to make not just good decisions, but to know the importance that the decisions I make, I can't blame anybody else. And keep me from living in the past. Keep me from thinking 
It's not my responsibility to have a new heart, a new spirit, new center of energy, gravity, whatever, to walk and run with you. If I don't have that oomph on the inside, that's the first decision I need to make. Help me, Lord. And there's your poverty of spirit. There's your mourning. There's your hunger and thirst and things of that sort. It comes from there so you can go forward. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. We decide to come into your presence. We know we don't do that of our own abilities. But we do that, Father, of our own responsibilities, that we have that weight of responsibility to come into your presence, your throne of grace, to seek help in time of need. Help us, Father, in the decisions that we make. Help these decisions, Father, that we make to be born from a new heart and a new spirit. Keep us, Father, from living in the past, defining ourselves by the past, not listening to the, the lies of what others might want to tie us to the past in our sinful states, but to listen to your truth, your word, that calls us sons, that says that we're loved and we're beloved in your sight. And tells us to choose this day whom you will serve. And that, Father, we cannot, we cannot and we will not serve anyone except Jesus Christ. And for his glory. Thank you. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.